Barney's doesn't guarantee success. Vogue doesn't guarantee success. What guarantees success is if you actually find an audience that actually loves your product. We've been very slow to change in terms of how technology has impacted our lives. A new social network can pop up overnight and completely change our business model. Hello and welcome to the Glossy Podcast, our weekly show where we discuss fashion, luxury, and technology with the people making change happen. I'm your host, Hillary Milanese, and today's guest is Mark Lynn, the CEO of Distilled Denim. In this episode, Mark talked about the DTC ecosystem, building a group for digital brands, and going public. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Mark. Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for coming in. So let's start off by talking about what exactly Digital Brands Group is. You are also the co-founder of Distilled Denim, and that has gone through a bit of an evolution. So tell us a little bit about your new title. Yeah, so um, Digital Digital Brands Group is really an evolution of uh, you know the, the distilled brand. We started um, Distilled in 2014 uh, with kind of a focus on um, premium denim and luxury essentials. So we're an LA-based um, company, and uh, as you might be familiar with, there's you know a plethora of um, kind of premium denim brands that have come out of LA over the you know the last ten years. Yeah. So there's a lot of kind of expertise in um, in that area. I mean, brands like Hudson, Citizens of Humanity, mm-hmm. True Religion, Seven for All Mankind. Uh, lucky brand, mother brand, you name it, all uh, LA. I think it, the stat is like 75% of the, the world's premium denim brands kind of originated in in the marketplace. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of knowledge there, uh, some great wash houses and um, some, some great kind of uh, uh, people that are really familiar with the industry. And so as we saw what was kind of happening in the um, the, the, the move to digital or the, the kind of the disintermediation uh, that was happening within the brand segments, uh, we thought, okay, well, you, you know, th- there's, there's, there's going to be a dominant player in the denim space and, uh, uh, you know, w- w- why not us? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, so, so with my, my partner, Corey Epstein, we uh, um, launched that brand in 2014 and uh, it was kind of my second uh, foray into the uh, um, digitally native vertical brand space. Mm-hmm. Um, I co-founded a company called Wink uh, Wines with uh, uh, my business partners in 2011, and um, so we were kind of familiar with the with the ecosystem. Obviously, apparel is a is a totally different animal, right? And uh, that that became kind of you know very apparent early on mm-hmm. with uh, some some supply chain uh, <laughs> overhauls. Um, but yeah, that's how we how we ended up starting the business. Right. So, so before we get into uh, digital brands group where we are now, what were in addition to supply chain that that com- complexity? What were the differences between launching Distilled and launching Wink? Uh, obviously, it was a similar business model in that you know you took the direct to consumer route. But what else did you have to kind of learn as you went when it, when it came to Distilled? Um, well, you know in in Particularly in in, in in wine, there's uh the, the U.S. operates under a three tier system. So, um, you know, uh, retailers, uh, producers have to sell to wholesalers, and wholesalers have to sell to retailers. Mm. Um, and so, uh, there is a, a slight exception under some license formats for wine. Um, and so, you know, we were really on the cutting edge of of the kind of stabilization 
uh, and liberalization within the the legal format mm-hmm. in that industry. Um, so you, you know they're, they're they're pretty different businesses in terms of the back end. Uh, I think the, the the area we were a little naive with uh, initially. Um, with distilled was that you know we felt like clothing is you know one of the the largest industries in the world and uh, obviously there was this kind of uh, deflationary pressure on a lot of the traditional retailers Mm -hmm. and um, you know we we felt like if if we could prove that we could sell um, we would we would have a uh, you know a, a list of of great vendors lining up to work with us mm. because we could prove you know we could prove that we could sell and and everybody else uh, you know w- was dealing with with uh, stagnant inventory and massive discounting and right. markup to markdown all these other issues and mm-hmm. the reality is that the business had been had been built um, the overall apparel industry has been built for for decades uh, very much in in a in a linear way and uh, they really aren't aren't that used to change so something the, the retailers you mean the vendors the, the, well the retailers and and frankly the the the, the manufacturers mm-hmm. so you know you think that that uh, it's in, it's incredible that you're going to have this real-time data that's going to tell you that you know we need 612 units of women's black jeans next month mm-hmm. but <laughs> the reality is that's not how how a factory operates right. so so um, that was a big part of the learning curve mm-hmm. and, and took some time to um, uh, kind of and I think you see this a lot with a lot of entrepreneurs you know you have you you know where there's going to be product market fit for your for your vision and you can you can prove that product market fit but then there's a, a big disconnect between that and and kind of where the rubber meets the road in mm-hmm. the manufacturing process and and and, and these type of uh, these type of things mm-hmm. ask ask Elon and his, his right. gigafactories <laughs> you know I mean it's 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 a it's a process right turns out the other hands that have been in these businesses traditionally have have a you know a, a heavier presence than I think a lot of the direct to consumer brands might have realized and it seems like a lot of times the the answer to that disconnect is to own the factories, own the manufacturers, or at least have, you know, the one, you know, sole deal with, with one factory. How did you, how did you guys deal with that disconnect? Yeah, it's actually, it's funny because, um, I joke that if I could go back and sell myself on one thing from five years ago, it would be to, would be to buy a factory. Um, but I know that myself five years ago, I, 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 I never would have agreed with myself. Right. So, right. And, you know, these are kind of the, the, the hard lessons, but, um, um, you know, I, I, fact, factory owners are, are um, they're starting to understand where the world is going, and there are systems that are, you know, starting to evolve that are that are making the relationships uh, more dynamic and mm-hmm. making them, uh, you know, more able to do some just in time. I think one of the big things that a lot of people don't talk about, and probably uh, you know, is less apparent to a lot of your guests because. They just rely on the the venture ecosystem and the venture debt ecosystem. But you know, you used to be able to build a a, a business in this space um, by by factoring. Mm. So you didn't have the same massive working capital costs, um, and that's one of the biggest problems. Or, or I, 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 I don't want to say it, problems, but it's one of the biggest barriers to entry in this space. Right? You can't sell your product until it's sitting on your shelf. Mm-hmm. Well, it can't sit until your shelf until you've until you've bought it. Right. <laughs> and then if you start growing really quickly, you know you have to, you know, have your raw goods backed up, and 
you have to have some some you know the capacity to do some really big contracts with with your vendors that's kind of a, a you know a, a very hard thing to do mm-hmm. whereas in the past you used to be able to just show your line to uh, some buyers and if you got the POs you could take the POs to the bank and the the bank would ultimately pay for your 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 product mm-hmm. so you know, that's how some of these businesses grew so quickly and so capital efficiently. And then, you know, you see kind of the the um, uh, the rest of the world looks at looks at our space and says, well, gee, you know, geez, you, you've raised $30 million. Like, where, you know, and you're not profitable. How, <laughs> where did it all go? And it's like, well, this is a, this is a whole other ecosystem. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the, the direct businesses are better for the customer, mm-hmm. um, and what's better for the customer in in the new world right. <laughs> always wins out. Right. Um, so, what's what's your approach been to raising funding and venture capital? Yes. Yeah, so we've taken a really interesting uh, approach in, in in this business. Um, we 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 uh, were the first e-commerce company to utilize Regulation A plus, mm-hmm. which is a uh, a new provision as part of the the Jobs Act, the Jump Starter Business Startups Act, and it essentially allows you to raise uh, money from um, an unlimited number of unaccredited investors. You can raise um, up to fifty million dollars a year using that platform. So, we've actually um, our last three rounds have have essentially been crowdfunded, mm-hmm. and I think we have about four thousand two hundred uh, investors. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that have participated in in, in that, and uh, that's been you know a really really cool experience. How did you even think to to go that route rather than traditional venture capital? Uh, a, a series of, uh, of of unfortunate events. No, I <laughs> I, I, I I'm kidding. Uh, we we really at the onset we didn't want to take traditional venture money because. Um, both Hill Davis, uh, our, our CEO, and myself had both been through that experience before, and we just felt like you know a lot of times, um, a lot of times venture and the entrepreneurs just are not well aligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, Would you say that's especially true for your, the category that you're in? I'd say uh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is nothing. I mean, venture is you know what makes the world go around in in, in a lot of industries and. I would certainly l- look at venture capital for a lot of businesses, but these types of consumer businesses, I, I, I don't know if it's if it's a great fit. Mm-hmm. And so we worked really, really hard to try and not take um, an institutional lead. And so to date, um, we've we've managed to raise about sixteen million dollars of paid-in capital without actually putting a, a VC on our board. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we joke the lunatics are, are still running the asylum, <laughs> um, but uh, it, it's it's I, you know we feel really strongly about it. It really aligns us. We want to build a, a really really big company over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. This isn't something we're trying to you know flip to a bigger company tomorrow. We we we, we want to be that bigger company tomorrow, mm-hmm. and um, this format really allows us to to uh, to do that and, and focus at, on, on the end goal rather than. You know, a fun cycle or a quarterly right. uh, kind of um, time frame. Right, and so will you uh, elaborate a little bit on those the misalignments between you know venture capitalists and and founders, especially when it comes to an industry like fashion? Like, what are they looking for? And because we've seen so like so much money is going into this direct to consumer category, whether it's apparel or or other uh, businesses. But so, you know, how are how do you see? 
that sort of playing out? Like what what are the odds working against each other there? Yeah, so I mean, I think you see a lot of these headlines. Um, the the question is, the devil's in the details on a lot of these deals, right? So there's there's is it, you know is there participating preferred in there? Is there a multiplier on participating preferred? The reality is that you know if you're five years down the road and you know you you might have built a business that is. Um, for all intents and purposes, from the from a traditional investor set, an incredible business, mm-hmm. um, but yet your venture investors have lost interest because you went from 400% growth to 200% growth to 100% growth to 50% growth to 30% growth. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're a publicly traded company in the retail space, growing at 30% year over year, you're you're a darling. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, if you're growing at 30% year over year to a VC, you know, you're, 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 you're out of gas. Yeah. You're, you're getting coal, uh, for Christmas. So they, um, you know, and, and, and then, and then, you know, you, you think that you have this kind of alignment and this support and that they're going to be behind you all the way mm-hmm. until you hit that point. And then you say, Hey, we need a, you know, we need a, fr- you know, fresh, a fresh round. They say, sure, sure. Here, here's what the terms are. Mm-hmm. You say, that's, what do you mean? My Series C, you want to do 50% the valuation of my Series A. I mean, that's just the reality of like what what happens out there. And so then, and and then founders are disenfranchised, and senior management is disenfranchised because they're like, well, you told us to grow as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, because it's it's we want to make Better the business as big as we possibly mm-hmm. can, and then if you need more money, we can retrade you down the road. And it's just there's there's not there's not the alignment people think, mm-hmm. and this is not a. A, bl- a blanket statement on v- there's they serve a terrific purpose and there are some incredible investors out there right. and we know a lot of them and and so that this is not a, a, a you know a, a blanket critique it's just the way we wanted to build our business mm-hmm. didn't include that path right because it, it, it does come down to a certain expectation of how fast a company will grow and especially when you're you're building a, a consumer apparel brand a fashion brand you know, no, nothing was really built overnight. It wasn't no. this gigantic boom. Um, so, so I think that you know we do see a lot of brands coming to terms with that. And so, going the route that you did with the the A plus um, investments, how have you been able to make decisions differently? Because you know it's it's a very different dynamic between the the funders and and the brand than than it is with a VC. Yeah, I mean, I think that. It's it's really interesting because you are you you build this discipline around communication mm-hmm. and transparency and talking to people and showing them your numbers from day one, which is like the diametric opposite of what most people do. You wait until the very last you know minute to start showing your numbers, so people kind of get to see the challenges we're going through. They get to see you know the wins, celebrate mm-hmm. the wins with us, and. Um, it turns a lot of our customers into evangelists, and those evangelists, you know, lower our overall kind of acquisition cost across the board, and mm-hmm. and, and ideally will create longer lifetime value customers. Um, and you know, it, so it, it's been it's been a really been a really positive um, process. But the problem is, you never know how successful you're going to be in any given raise and so you know planning becomes an issue and you obviously can't get um, uh, the same types of traditional venture debt that you can if you have a blue chip VC mm-hmm. um, so you know there's and 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 you know some people particularly um, 
you know, once you go this route, I think a lot of, and, and you're starting to see this change in, in Europe now because the European market for this is probably 10 years ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, we saw um, a, a TSG, I think, just, just took a huge position in a company called BrewDogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they just invested $200 million in that deal, and that deal had been crowdfunded all the way through up until that point. So that was kind of the first uh, glimmer of the of the ecosystem kind of changing. And I think some of the big blue chips are now starting to be much more open to these kind of, you know, allowing some of the cap table to be taken down by um, – uh, by evangel- evangelistic investors, you're seeing Airbnb is trying to get some rules changed to mm. allow their hosts to actually receive stock in the business. Interesting. Um, and you know, I think that some of the some of the the rise of tokenization and the crypto stuff has kind of put, help help put some pressure on all of these other mechanisms mm-hmm. to make everybody reflect on why do why do we do it the way we used to do it? Right, like traditional you know? stocks and, and that type of thing. Exactly. Uh, interesting. And so, with that transparency that you mentioned, does that mean you're sharing, you know, profitability and revenue and, and annual growth with your customers? Yeah. So part of Regulation A plus is you're actually like a semi-reporting um, SEC company. Mm-hmm. So we're not. Uh, we don't have the the uh, today um, because we do plan on on, on listing uh, soon. Um, we do have to report semi-annually to the SEC, and so our numbers are out there for everybody to see. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, you build the the, the, the you build the discipline around investor communications. We send updates. We have an investor portal on our website. We, you know, it's we're trying to build a community out of it. Right. Um, so. And so, so yeah, so you have an IPO coming up. Is that right? Or you're planning to have one? What's y- the status there? Yeah. So I, I think you know we've we've kind of got to the point now where um, it, it makes sense for us. We we're already um, dealing with a lot of the you know infrastructure issues around. Uh, um, uh, having to deal with multiple investors and that type of thing, so then the next natural stage for us is to um, is to list, and um, we're we're looking at actually doing that um, on the uh, the AIM, which is a, a market in a submarket of the London Stock Exchange, mm-hmm. um, because we think that's a great great fit for us. Um, companies like Boohoo and, and ASOS are, are listed on that exchange too, mm-hmm. so those investors are quite familiar with the business model, and. Um, it, it's a much more supportive ecosystem for small and, and, and growing companies, whereas the U.S. is obviously still the best. The Nasdaq and, and New York Stock Exchange are still the, the you know the biggest baddest exchanges in the world, if you will. But mm-hmm. they but you really you really have to be a billion dollar plus company to 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 get on there. Right. Um, but our thesis is kind of as we develop this build and you know build and buy strategy. Um, you know, there's a lot of businesses, and, and frankly, I don't think our strategy is, is that much different from what, say, Andy is going to try and do at, at Walmart. Mm-hmm. Um, just we're going to do it at a, at, a, at, a, at a much smaller scale. We're really focused on kind of the businesses that are sub sub fifty million dollars in revenue, or even sub twenty five million dollars in revenue, and um, uh, we believe that you know we're, we're moving into an era where people want hyper-specialization within their brands. Um, you know, you, you have you have brands where, where a lot of them failed was they tried, they didn't get customer permission to uh, move into, you know, different categories and things mm-hmm. like that. So right. we think it's going to be much easier to build, you know, five fifty to $100 million brands mm-hmm. than it is to try and build $1 billion brand and kind of use that shared resources platform. We'll be right back. Hi. 
I'm Gianna Cappadona, producer of the Glossy Podcast, taking a quick break from this episode to talk to you about another show we've been working on called the Glossy Beauty Podcast. Each week, Glossy's beauty editor, Priya Rouse, sits down with leaders in the beauty and wellness industries. This week, we sit down with Nest Fragrances founder and CEO, Laura Slatkin, to talk all about her move from Wall Street into home fragrances, building the Nest brand, and their most recent expansion into personal care. You can catch new episodes of the show every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave us any feedback you have. Now back to the episode. So yeah, so that brings us to Digital Brands Group, and yeah, I think it speaks to what you said when you look at the direct to consumer, the digitally native brands, that's what the customers want. It's good for the customers. And so that is eventually going to win out, but it's still hard to run a retail business no matter what, especially when you consider the disconnects between that model and the manufacturers that are involved, the retailers, and even the the people behind the scenes funding it, the, the venture capitalists. So that would you say that eventually brought you to this idea of consolidation? You know, not every single new brand could ever reach a billion dollars. I think that's something we've echoed on this on the show a lot. It's yep. like this era of massive standalone brands is is kind of behind us, but if you look at it on the the bright side, you could have like a group of like-minded brands that are stronger together. So, how did that sort of play out for for you guys? Yeah, so I think that um you know, obviously, there's a lot of these platform costs. So you think about like the GNA savings, um, which you can then kind of reinvest into into cash flow and, and marketing, which allows you to grow your brand uh, uh, bigger. So there's there's kind of the savings bucket, and then there's also the the retention of of talent bucket, mm-hmm. right? Which which I think a lot of people don't think about or talk about. Mm-hmm. But like, if you start a company, you know, three co-founders get together, they started one of these kind of DMVBs seven seven years ago they were let's take the typical profile they're 27 years old they're in San Francisco mm-hmm. and now they've built a great little business they built a 20 or 25 million dollar revenue business you know two of the two of the uh, co-founders are, are getting married and they want to buy their first house or they want to buy you know and the, and it's like they've got a 20 million dollar revenue business which which was beyond their wildest dreams when they started the company mm-hmm. but the realities of the of, of, of the world dictate that they're a little too small for private equity mm-hmm. um, you know the, the their their lead VC is kind of lost interest in in, in following on mm-hmm. uh, they're not qu- growing quite fast enough for <laughs> for the for the next round so they're right. like oh, do we do it down round do we and then you know then the CFO is like hey I'm gonna leave to go to this <laughs> other venture back company because it's good and it's just this this that you can get into this this really kind of um, um, uh, like a rat almost. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, w- w- how we envision uh, Digital Brands Group is 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 uh, you know is allowing businesses to flourish in the where in the in the things that are important for the customer, mm-hmm. right? So, like getting the getting the brand back to that product market fit stage, right. and trying to alleviate the capital concerns, alleviate the management concerns, kind of the SGNA side of the business, and also provide them with you know um stock Mm -hmm. that is on a stock option plan that's actually can provide them if they do what they need to do over a five-year plan you know a a path um and 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 i think that's underestimated for a lot of entrepreneurs it's like people were like a lot of entrepreneurs are really good at at saying okay if you show me the you show me the way and i'll get there Mm -hmm. um but it's just it, it it can be very very difficult at subscale in this space. Scale solves a lot of problems. 
in, mm-hmm. in these businesses. And, um, you know, um, we, we saw that, uh, you know, at, at Wink. Um, Hill saw that at, at Jay Hilburn, the company he founded, you know, which are both um, uh, much bigger businesses. Uh, you know, profitable businesses today, mm-hmm. um, but that comes with that comes with scale, mm-hmm. and scale comes with investment, and and you know, so and that gets you back to the to kind of the starting point. So right. that's why we think it's a a pretty interesting thing. And and listen, a lot of people would say, well, th- you're way too small to do this, and you're way too, and I, and that's you know maybe true, but at the same time, um, this this. Uh, Kind of move to these massive IPOs is actually something that's only only happened more recently. So if you look at kind of our parents' generation, I'm, you know, I'm speaking as a as a cut off millennial. <laughs> just I think I've, I'm, a, I'm six months before the cutoff. But if you look at our parents' generations, the, the Nikes of the world, the Starbucks of the world, those companies went, uh, and frankly, even Amazon. Mm-hmm. Amazon went public two years after they they launched. Right. That's unheard of today because of the, the world is awash with with. Um, with uh, private capital. And so it's a little bit contrarian, but for us, when we look at how are we going to build a billion-dollar business over over the next 10 years, um, it, it feels a lot better than so, yeah. the other alternatives. Right. And so when you think about um, other brands in the group, and, and is it how many are, are involved right now? Like, who's it made up of? So, so it's it's distilled, and mm-hmm. then we just launched um, our, our newest brand, Ace Studios, mm-hmm. which is men's suiting and sportswear business, um, which we're really excited about. That's it's kind of kind of in in uh, kind of stealth right now, but it'll be you know uh, live in the next uh, week or so. Right. So we've been doing a lot of work on that over the last six months to kind of demonstrate our capacity to to launch other brands mm-hmm. internally. Um, and then I think the next thing that we'll want to prove out is that we can we can buy uh, and integrate right. uh, one or two piece. one or two smaller brands, mm-hmm. and then from there that'll probably give us the confidence to to start spreading our wings a little bit mm-hmm. and and really take some bigger bites at the apple. Mm-hmm. And then it also just allows you on that talent side, which I can't stress enough. Like talent is you know as a as a CEO you think about. Uh, three three things, right? It's what's the strategic vision for your business? How do you hire and retain top talent? And how do you you know keep 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 the checking account <laughs> full that you can you can kind of continuously uh, uh, focus on, on on the other two pieces? Right. Uh, talent acquisition and retention is incredibly incredibly difficult, and really smart people are really hard to find, really hard to keep, and and really expensive. And so, mm-hmm. part of this part of this whole um, concept is is really to give them a way to to um, see light at the end of the tunnel mm-hmm. to know that you know a couple of people have been burned in these situations where there is a lot of paid in capital from VCs that have put preference and have put you know accruing interest on and so the guy that's been working 14 hours a day that joint that was employee five at a at a, at a, a e-commerce or DMVB startup, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you know, he, he has seen his what he thought was his, you know, his nest egg or his entire life's net worth, mm-hmm. uh, essentially wiped out right. by some some structure, right. and that's a really disenfranchised. Nothing feels as as bad as that, mm-hmm. and so this is a mechanism where we can kind of help mitigate that. We mm-hmm. think that people will really respond well to that, right? Because there's growth opportunities and so almost like a. A one step higher calling than than the immediate brand that you're working on because it's towards this idea that these brands are stronger together and you're working with 
the, the overhead company as well. Absolutely. And they just are de-risking because they actually have public, it's public stock. So right. they know at the end of every you know quarter, they if they have a planned stock sale, they can actually convert it to cash rather than rather than space bucks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so with the, with the new brand you're launching and any other brands that come out um, internally, are you looking to the distilled model and how that brand grew as almost like the blueprint to for those brands to follow suit? Or like what did you learn from that brand experience that you can reiterate on with, with new brands? So um, I think the, the um, interesting thing about the ecosystem we're in with, the, with, with the, these type of businesses mm-hmm. is that uh, the model that you used two years ago is is only partially applicable to what you can do today. Mm-hmm. So I mean, you know, I'm, so part of that goes back to this talent piece. Mm-hmm. Is like sometimes it's just about getting a bunch of smart people with resources in a room and kind of figuring out what the next uh, the next step is. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are listen, there are still areas that are working very well. Um, obviously, there is you know. Um, inflationary pressure on the traditional kind of uh, acquisition channels, mm-hmm. like um, Instagram, Facebook. Sure, sure. We're, we're, I mean, everybody is seeing that across the board. You don't, you can't have the kind of arbitrage that you had, you know, in right. 2012. You pay, you pay up. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, 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 that would be nice. But, but at the same time, the ecosystem is changing so much, and the and the big, you know, the big box retailers are, you know, where 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 two years ago they're saying, well, we would never share data. There's mm-hmm. no way we'll do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Amazon is aggressively trying to f- find a way into the hearts and minds of the the DMVBs. Mm-hmm. Um, I've spent a lot of time in Seattle, taught, you know, explaining to them why why it doesn't make sense for us. Um, as as I'm as as some of my um, peers in the space have also been doing. Right. So, so they're I think pursuing that, you guys, though. They're pursu- they're pursu- not just us, but I think you know. Look, the customers want to work with direct brands. That's why you know Nord- Nordstrom has been one of the, the first guys to really um, embrace that. Yeah. And and rather than looking at it as a as a as a threat, they're mm-hmm. looking at it as an opportunity. Look at you know look at their numbers. Right. Um, re- you know relative to it, it's it's better for the customer. This is what customers want. Mm-hmm. The customer wants glossier. They want a way. They want Everlane. They want distilled. You know, this is the this is the future, right? right? So, so ultimately, the customer always gets what they want, and um, you know, if the incumbents want to stay in business, they'll they'll figure out a way to to play nice and and everybody play in the same sandbox. And so, I think that you know the hard and fast rules of of you know we we would never sell you know wholesale. I think that's all coming back coming back around. Mm-hmm. Like like so many of these things are. Are cyclical. It's just that those relationships are going to be different. Mm-hmm. You know, store within a store. You know, where you where you get to share data. Right. Um, there's you know, obviously retail is a, is a huge area. What you know, we think uh, retail kind of showroom retail is a is a huge area of opportunity. We've been doing a lot of testing around our our pop-ups uh, mm-hmm. nationally to really kind of uh, hone in on the thesis there, and that's going to be a huge focus of us, right. uh, for us, uh, 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 towards the end of this year, and, and ne- oh, well, I guess this year now. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, ex- it's exciting times. Yeah, for sure, and, and it seems like for a lot of the ways that, like you said, it's it's an always changing strategy, and, and a lot of w- the ways that these um, online brands were, were founded, where they kind of ruled out, like, you know, built brands on this proposition that they weren't going to have stores or, or retail it's always like never say never now it's like oh with an asterisk you know it's going to be different things like that have been held up 
by retail over time are, you know, they're, they're there for a reason. But would you say that, that selling on Amazon is one thing where you cannot at least see right now the proper use case or what that would benefit the brand um, if you were to do that? Yeah, I, it's definitely a never, never say never situation. I mean, you just don't know what they're. I mean, look, we don't sell on Amazon today. We don't see a roadmap uh, today, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that uh, I, you know they've they've some really smart people over there right. that really genuinely are trying to figure this out, mm-hmm. and um, so. We could get, a, could get a text or email in 15 minutes that, hey, we've, we've kind of come up with something that makes sense for you. And then at the same time, like, we use Amazon Pay. Mm-hmm. We use uh, AWS mm-hmm. for a service. You know, right. so, like, they'll get you somehow, uh-huh. you know. Yes. Um, and so, you know, I think we're, we're almost out of time, but, you know, just talking about this idea of growth and, and how big retailers or retail brands modern ones can grow today and how quickly that happens. How do you take, how do you look at that from the digital brands group perspective? What do you see as like the long-term like growth path for a company like that? And how does that differ from an individual brand's uh, trajectory? Yeah. So I think, you know, once again, scale heals a lot of uh, wounds in this space. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as we start kind of, uh, and, and, and what I would consider scale is kind of, you know, $50 million, uh, $50 million of, of kind of uh, top line revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where you start getting some real, um, um, some real power with your, with all of your suppliers and, and so on and so forth. And so I, I, I think we see Digital Brands Group, um, uh, you know, getting out as a small public company, Proving out that we can buy and build great brands, mm-hmm. and then you know the the nice thing about the, the the that format is that we can build to be a legacy. Like when we think about the big publicly traded holding companies, VF or LVMH on the luxury side, um, you know uh, Tapestry here in the U.S. Like that's we we, we you know that's the story we want to be over 10 or 15 years mm-hmm. and so we have to be less worried about you know it's it, it's kind of almost contrarian because people say oh well when you're a public company you have to be worried about quarter after quarter after quarter it's like well kinda <laughs> but at the same time you, you're you're only in that format if you believe that you can be a standalone business for a very long period of time mm-hmm. it's actually much more stressful when you only have two strategic buyers and one of them just pulled out and so then you've got one, you know. So that's not that's not a that's 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 not something that we uh, 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 want to be vulnerable to. So we believe that this is the best kind of long term path for us, and we think that we're going to be able to to recruit a lot of great brands on mm-hmm. onto the platform and a lot of great operators, and we're going to be able to take a lot of the headache off. Uh, of w- and let them kind of get back to their founding principles of right. like why they got excited about the business in the first place, mm-hmm. you know, and get get that really re- reinvigorate that entrepreneurial spirit mm-hmm. um, and those conversations with customers and and that's what kind of you know makes us really excited about about this plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so let's just say, like you, you mentioned, um, you know, Walmart and what Andy Dunn is doing there. They clearly have their in a much more visible way, their their sights set on on these brands. Uh, if if you wanted to acquire a brand and they're also being, you know, pitched by Walmart, what would you say? Why why join your group instead? 
Well, I, 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 I don't see in the in the short term. I don't see there being much channel conflict there because we're doing this at a. We're, we're going to be focusing on kind of smaller businesses than they are. Mm. I mean, you, you know, Walmart's a, a pretty big, pretty big pretty business big. with a big balance sheet, <laughs> and um, it doesn't really make sense for them to do deals under the hundred, mm-hmm. m- you know, million dollar range. Is probably the absolute you know, smallest company right. um, in the foreseeable future that they would they would look at. Mm-hmm. And, well, say uh, the brand that you're looking at is thinking like, okay, if we were to stay on our own, grow a little bit. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, it's that, that's going to come down very much to the, the the profile of who who you know um, who they would be working for, what resources they got, mm-hmm. what the opportunity. What the opportunity? There's always opportunity cost in any decision, and so the the, the nuance of that would be would, would have to be uh, uh, decided on by the entrepreneur, I think. And and um, you know, do they kind of want to stay? Because we're going to very much be in startup mode for mm-hmm. for for a while, right. and obviously at a, at a company their size and scale, although they are. Um, uh, uh, scrappy, and I do applaud what they're doing. I think it's good. A ri- rising tide lifts all boats, kind mm-hmm. of in 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 this uh, space a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're, you're you're going to have a little bit more, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, big big company culture right. uh, it, it ha- has to permeate yeah. at some point mm-hmm. when you're at that size. Right. So you're going to be think, a Walmart brand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, without being too, you know. Well, well, great. I'm really excited to see see what you guys do, uh, and and best of luck. It's going to be a big year, I think. Thank you so much for having us. Of course. And thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. Special thanks to Gianna Cappadona, the producer of this podcast. If you've been enjoying the Glossy podcast and aren't a Glossy Plus subscriber yet, it's time to consider joining to get access to all of Glossy's content, member events, ticket discounts, Slack chats, and more. As a reward for listening, use the code Hillary25 at glossy.co slash plus to get 25% off an annual subscription. That's H-I-L-A-R-Y 25 at glossy.co slash plus. And as always, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Anchor FM and leave us any feedback you have.